Hello, welcome to Entrepreneurship at UBC's podcast, Evolution. I'm your host, MJ. Today we have Paul Needham joining us. Paul is one of Entrepreneurship at UBC's Entrepreneurs in Residence. He's also an economist, fintech and cleantech serial entrepreneur with over 19 years of experience as CEO and board member, leading companies from founding to successful exits. He also currently serves as a board member and senior advisor to Energy Access Enterprises, financing facilities and social impact investment funds that are accelerating the energy transition. Paul co-founded Simpa Energy India, which provides rooftop solar solutions to low-income households in rural India. Paul, tell us more about Simpa and what brought you to that project. Access to energy creates access to opportunity. And people who are living without access to reliable electricity or reliable sources of energy, um, you know, the opportunities in their lives are greatly constrained. And when we started the company in about 2010-2011, solar technologies were already widely available. As with many renewable energy technologies, the problem is the very high upfront cost. You could purchase a solar panel and then get free electricity, but if you can't afford to purchase it in the first place, then you just can't realize the benefits of it. So our business idea was to sell solar much like a prepaid mobile phone. So as you know, with a prepaid phone, you you buy the phone, which is not that expensive, and then you pay for the service. So it's a pay-as-you-go model for, for the telephone service or the mobile phone service. So we wanted to create that same user experience for solar panels. So we invented some technology that integrates into the back of the solar panel so we could remotely turn it on and off over the air. So it's IoT tech integrated into the panel that allows us to create this pay-as-you-go user experience for the customer. So the customer makes a small initial payment and they get the solar equipment installed. They get a solar panel, battery, lights, fan. Uh, we have bigger systems with TVs. Um, but just like a prepaid mobile phone, it, it does not work until you prepay for service. So the customer might pay for 10 days in advance, 30 days, whatever they can afford. And then the system magically turns on, delivers energy and, and lighting and cooling until they start to run out of credits prepaid credits and they start to get alerts on their on their phone via SMS and then at their convenience they can go back and top up the system again and those payments for energy service add up towards the total purchase price so after using the system for about two or three years they end up paying it off and owning it and then of course they get free electricity thanks for sharing very interesting to see different models and approaches to support the transition to renewable energy. Now, moving on to the current work you are doing, tell us more about what you're up to at UBC. Well, um, as you know, UBC declared a climate emergency in December 2019. Um, a very bold move, really one of the leading universities in the world. It certainly captured the headlines. So I, I came to, to speak to people at UBC and, and I learned about, you know, not just the declaration, but the very structured process that's being run now to engage stakeholders across the university to understand and decide what exactly that means. What does it mean to declare a climate emergency? What are we going to do differently? Um, 
And so this stakeholder engagement process is ongoing. Uh, it's a fantastic process and looking forward to the outcomes. Also feeding into that, I think us at Entrepreneurship at UBC have a really important role to play um, in, in helping uh, build ventures that are offering solutions to the climate emergency. So you bring up a good point here. At the institutional level, UBC has declared a climate emergency. What does that mean and what doors does it open when a declaration as such is given? Well, I think in doing so, the university is joining, at last count, about 1,400, 1,500 jurisdictions around the world, other cities, uh, major institutions, um, provinces, states. Uh, yeah, over 1,500 jurisdictions have declared a climate emergency. Um, most, like the city of Vancouver, are now translating that into very specific action plans. And this, I believe, it will create a massive opportunity for companies that are offering solutions. So when the city of Vancouver declares a climate emergency and then develops a number of specific areas that they that they want to work on and things they want to change, um, this can take the form of new, new bylaws, new policies, but it ultimately it will also take the form of new procurement. So companies and cities around the world that are looking to, to act on the climate emergency are actively looking for solutions. And this creates market demand for companies that are offering those solutions. Hmm. So let's dive deeper. I think most of us have a general understanding of what a climate solution might look like, but what does the term climate solutions really encompass? Yeah, well, I mean, climate solutions is a big term. Um, I guess at a high level, Climate solutions are technologies and systems that can help stop or reverse global heating or help societies address and mitigate the risks of climate change. So usually, you know, if you break that down a little further, you can think of climate solutions that do one of three things. They either help reduce the sources of greenhouse gases or they help improve the effectiveness of the sinks that the systems, the natural systems we have that, that sink and capture carbon, or third, that somehow improve the ability of societies to manage through those risks. You know, within climate solutions, there are some surprising subcategories that people don't often think about. Often when we think about climate solutions, we think clean tech or we think renewable energy, but helping people shift to plant-based diets is probably one of the biggest areas of impact on the climate. Um, it impacts land use, uh, it impacts you know, direct emissions of, of GHGs. Um, and at, at the individual level, it's probably the single most important thing a person could do. Uh, probably more impactful than, uh, than you know, changing how you move around the city or changing how you, you move around from country to country. Um, shifting to a plant-based diet it, it has enormous impact. Um, and companies that help people do that, make that easier, provide uh, healthier, tastier, plant-based options. Given your work at entrepreneurship at UBC, I think it would also be interesting to hear about examples of companies that could fall under the umbrella of climate solutions. So, in fact, 
Supporting climate solutions at E at UBC is not new. We have a number of companies in our in our network, companies that we've touched, that we've helped build, um, that are that are developing climate solutions. Right, uh, Cambridge Energy Partners, Acuva, Green Metrics, Carbonet, uh, Orbitless, Sustainable. In our uh, social venture stream right now, we have a company that's developing a low carbon uh, cement solution. Um, we have a company that's developing a fisheries management solution, detecting illegal fishing using long-range drone technologies. Um, there's a company working on an organic fertilizer solution that could increase yields while also improving the ability of soil to capture and store carbon. So we've been building climate solutions ventures all along. I think the opportunity now is to find ways to accelerate that work, uh, to bring more focus to it, and to and to really think clearly about you know what are the barriers, what would it take to double the number of climate solutions ventures coming out each year. Those are the questions we're asking ourselves right now, and and developing some some new programming around. So tell me more about what barriers exist that prevent taking climate solutions into the market and commercializing them. One of the barriers is, you know, it sounds easy, but it's it's really vexing and it's just about information sharing. Um, people naturally tend to work in their silos and and, you know, we're all guilty of this. Um, now, what has often happened with most incubator programs around the world or, or venture building programs around the world, what tends to happen is we wait for an entrepreneur to step forward with an idea and, and ask for help, right? The entrepreneur knocks on the door and she says, I've got this fantastic idea. I've developed something in the lab and, and I'd, like to, I'd like to build a business around this. I'd like to take it to market and I need your help. And they come to E at UBC or they may go to another um, uh, incubator or accelerator. And what sometimes then happens is that that entrepreneur has a fantastic solution but doesn't quite yet know what the problem is. So the solutions sometimes get developed in a vacuum. And, uh, and then a big part of the work that's done in an incubator is helping that entrepreneur figure out where best to apply that, uh, that technology or that innovation. Now, of course, that entrepreneur isn't coming completely blind. They have, they have a, usually quite a deep understanding of the market, uh, but um, there's a better approach and, and, I, and, and it's really about the better approach is to create a dialogue, a more active dialogue between the market and the researchers. Um, that dialogue should be ongoing, not a one-off thing. Um, it should be an ongoing dialogue where an effort is made to deeply understand the problem space and, and articulate the highest impact problem areas and then engage with the university or centers of research to understand what possible solutions might be available. Um, so it, it's, it's more of a, a, a very intentional uh, approach to communication between research and the market. And when I say the market, I mean industry, but also government and, and civil society. How has COVID affected the market for climate solutions, in your opinion? Well, I think the, you know, the, the, the COVID emergency has really 
has, has done many things. It's demonstrated society's ability to pull together when, when it's needed and to do what's necessary. Um, you know, this has been the struggle for the, the, climate, um, the climate action movement over the past many, many years. Um, and I think what we've seen here is people pulling together, recognizing the dangers of, of a common enemy and, uh, and taking the action that's needed to manage through it. And so I, I think that that level of social cohesion and action is really very inspiring. Another thing that I think this COVID emergency has, has given us is an opportunity to, to rebuild an economy that's, that, that we deserve to, you know, the, the, the economic shutdown that was necessary uh, to, to stop this disease in its tracks and, and to manage it, manage it ourselves through it has already had just enormous impact economically on so many people. Um, millions, tens of millions of people in North America losing their job. Um, many small businesses uh, uh, pushed to the brink or failing. Um, and many governments stepping forward with various kinds of stimulus packages to, to restart the economy or to lessen the blow. And as, we, as I think now we're shifting, governments are shifting from focusing on lessening the blow to focusing on stimulating the economy and, and restarting it. And I think what's really important is that we use this opportunity for a clean restart, that we don't go back to business as usual, that instead we use this opportunity to build a clean economy that we need and that our children deserve. Back in 2013, uh, Jigger Shaw published a book called Climate Wealth, where he analyzed the opportunity to shift to a low carbon economy. And at that time, his calculations were a $10 trillion opportunity. Now, the International Renewable Energy Agency has identified a $110 trillion opportunity. Um, there, there are different approaches to coming up with those figures, of course. But the bottom line, and, and we mustn't get distracted by whether it's a $10 trillion or a $100 trillion opportunity. The bottom line is there is a massive market opportunity to build the low carbon economy that we need. Thank you, Paul, for your insights and for ending in that hopeful note. As you mentioned, it is an opportunity that we have right now to restart and to drastically change systems and structures that have been in place in the past and make room for more innovation. Thank you for joining us, and we hope to see you next time. In the meantime, stay safe and stay healthy.